welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. What, what thing do you want to talk about first? Maybe, uh, uh, maybe let's get the ads out of the way first. Oh, no, I think we should do our top of the show thing okay, first. Okay. So let me, because I, yeah, I know you have exciting news, or uh, you had an exciting week. Yes. But all of us movie fans uh, had a bad weekend. Yeah. Um, because very uh, unsurprisingly and suddenly uh, Anton Yelchin passed away. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I found myself really bummed about it. Probably had- because I've... Even though he's still a very young actor, uh, because I watched Huff on yep. Showtime, yep. I've been aware of Anton Ocean for 10 years at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it really, um, I mean, it surprised everybody because it, it was such a horrible freak accident, yeah. you know, because I first heard car accident, I thought, yeah, well, that happens. But this was very, it was very much avoidable, uh, on the part of this car company. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I'm really interested, interested to see what will happen with that. Um, but yeah, it, it affected me more than I thought it was going to. And I think maybe it's because it's not merely that he was young. I think it goes to what you're saying. It's sort of like if one of the actors from Harry Potter died, it's right. someone that we've watched that you and I as adults have watched grow up. Right. And yeah. now that's all we're going to see from him and yeah. see him develop as an actor and develop as a person and then know that like, oh, there's a there's an end here. You know, once we all see the new Star Trek or and I'm sure I think there are some other things that that he had finished but haven't been released yet. Once those are done, then that's it. His filmography is over. His life is over. Mm-hmm. And at such a young age, and you realize that he could have gone on. I mean, he was already a very, very good actor, often a great actor of his own generation. But, you know, in five, ten years, he could be doing Oscar caliber films and be giving Oscar caliber performances. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think uh, I mean, I think 2015 was uh, between. green room which didn't come out here until 2016 right um uh which i think got him some of the best notices of his career yeah and then i know you and i were both big fans of his uh very brief appearance in experimenter yeah uh, he was great just a one scene uh yeah uh scene an entire one scene role but it's fantastic and to me that what he brings to that performance was and because he's playing a very adult character there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got a that, mustache. Yeah. He's got a mustache and everything, but just the way that he takes a certain stand to me, that was like a promise of things to come. Right. right. And I remember being like, I haven't, I haven't seen this from him before and I'm really excited to see what will come next. And he was very good in green room. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and I've really liked what he's brought to the Chekhov character in Star Trek. I, I thought he was great in Huff, you know, holding his own um, amidst uh, very experienced character actors. And yeah, and I thought he was very good in Alpha Dog. He's just a, he was a very, I don't know, he was a, it wasn't merely that he was good. He was also unique. He had a, a certain screen presence that you just don't find a lot of places mm-hmm. where he exuded intelligence. Um, 
Yeah. But also, and could seem wise beyond his years without, to me, ever seeming like the character was overwritten or anything like that. He seemed like a guy who was smarter than most people his age, but right, still but had precious about it. Yes. And maybe still had the same emotions that other people his age had. So it's like, oh, I'm t- it's uh, the idea of maybe being a little bit too smart for his own good, but not so smart that everyone, that people just don't, just don't get, don't get him, get him. Uh, and yeah, it was a, he had an interesting on screen press that I can't think of a lot of other people his age having. Yeah. And, uh, he will be very missed. I mean, I got a, even a little bit misty when I, when I thought of, of him being gone, you know, he wasn't one of my favorite actors, but he was just, this happens with characters, uh, with, with actors like that. And certainly because he was young, but just, mm-hmm. you just sort of assume they'll always be around. And then when something, something happens and they're gone, you just feel like, oh, this is, you know, uh, I read a book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves, in which it talks about the four, like, four different types of love. Mm-hmm. And one of them is called simply affection, where, yes, you can have it for like a pet as well, but it's also just the people in your life that they're, they're not good friends. You might not even know them. There could just be somebody at a coffee shop that you go to and they're always there. And then one day they're not, and you realize that there is a, an almost stabilizing influence to mm. this to this person. And so many actors are that for me because they've been around for a long time. You know, like when James Rebhorn passed away, I remember being like, "Ah, oh, James Rebhorn, yeah, man!" Like I thought he was always going to be around. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, and Anton Yelchin. It's weird to me that so many people are like, oh, Chekhov. And I was like, yeah, he's been around longer than that. Yeah. But I guess that is the thing that kind of put him on the map on a, on a wider scale. But I still haven't seen any of those. Um, or either of those, I guess. There's a third one coming. But, yeah. Um, I own both. I think you would enjoy them. And he is very good in them. Um, but uh, Experimenter is on Netflix. So people should. Yeah. Uh, it's a good movie anyway. But yeah, uh, yeah worth watching um, to, to check out a. Uh, like you were saying, uh, a, a promise of what what might have come. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, but what's going on in your life? Okay. So I wanted to regale you in uh, some of my stories. Now, I got to be careful because I don't want to alienate anybody because you never know who could listen. Um, <laughs> because uh, I did get a a Facebook friend request from one of my classmates. Now Uh I don't know how this person found me. We do have a mutual friend and, uh, our stupid friend, Dan, um, Dan Langford. He's not stupid, stupid because we have another friend named Dan who also went to. Yes. Yes. No, uh, no, not Dan Gavazdan is Dan Langford. Dan Gavazdan is not stupid at all. No, no, no. Dan Dan Langford is often. And I do. I, it's so much fun because we all made fun of Dan as is very easy to do. And the first time you came to one of our uh, <laughs> uh, award uh, fantasy award drafts, uh, and you were and you kind of defended Dan for about twenty minutes, and then you're like, "Oh no, shut up, Dan!" Yeah, and then I found myself yeah. going, "Fuck you, Dan!" Yeah, it's yeah. it's so easy to do. <laughs> uh, he has an extremely punchable face, but we love him. We love him yes. absolutely. Um, Be clear. So yeah, uh, so I had my just like. <laughs> Uh, no, sign, we were talking about Seinfeld in the mm-hmm. uh, movie journal this week. Yeah. Uh, when George Costanza is like, uh, 
Every group has one person they all make fun of, you know, like us with Elaine. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I'll give just a, a, a short recount of my first day at school, my first day in a classroom in 12 years. Yeah. Um, and thank you, everybody, for being very nice on Twitter and Facebook about it um, and being very encouraging. Uh, I do appreciate it. So... I take the bus down. I don't drive. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a bus that drops me off literally right by the building that I'm going to be at. And uh, so I'm walking to class. And first thing that happens is I walk by uh, an older looking man with a beard. And he looked vaguely familiar. And I was like, huh. And he gave me a little nod. I gave him a little nod. And then I kept walking. And I thought, oh, shit, that was Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. And I realized that I had walked past like this silver trailer that was on campus and he seemed to be walking towards that. I passed by it again when I left and I saw that, that on the outside of the trailer, uh, the words American Zoetrope were were on there. So that is where he, so he is staying on campus for a while. And then I I spoke with Dan and apparently, um, Coppola is, uh, utilizing some free UCLA labor to, uh, like some student labor to get a project done. I can't, don't you like that about Coppola? I that do kind of like that. He's yes. still like a ragtag independent filmmaker. Yeah. Who has also directed multiple of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. Uh, and, uh, owns a winery. <laughs> yeah. But he's, yeah, I like, I like Coppola a lot. Yeah. And when he showed up at Comic-Con that one year, <laughs> oh man, that was the best. It yeah. Was the best. It was, uh, but I told you what you should have said to him. What's that? Uh, which, uh, like Christopher Moltisanti when he saw Martin Scorsese in The Sopranos and said, Kundun, I liked it. <laughs> you should have said. Twixt. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think I went with The Rainmaker. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. But I do like The Rainmaker. Yeah, well, and but Christopher Moltisanti the, did but, like Kundun. Yeah, but people saw The Rainmaker. I you got to go with something like... Uh, yeah, Twixt, uh, uh, youth, uh, youth Without youth, youth. Youth Without Youth. Yeah, Tetro. Yeah, Ugh, which I haven't seen any of those. Um, so anyway, uh, so that was a fun and promising way to start my day. And so then I went in and uh, and sat in on my class. And I will say, so here is part of my experience of the day. And I texted you this. And this is where I'm probably going to get in a little bit of trouble, um, if anyone happens to hear it. It has been a while since I have been in a room with film students. Uh, I'm going to say a little over 12 years. A little over 12 years, just barely. Um, And at the time, I was a film student, so I might have been a little bit blind, not totally, a little bit blind to how film students sound. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I probably sounded that same way, uh, which is... Just insufferable. Just full of shit. <laughs> full of shit and eager to prove themselves. Yeah, you somehow you didn't you somehow these people think they don't realize they came to film school to learn about film. They think, well, they obviously let me into the school so I can tell all the other students about film because I know everything. Well, and you know, if you're part of the graduate program, that means you were accepted into it. So mm-hmm. there is an element of the school wants you there, and that's very exciting. So I could see at a young age being excited about that. I was excited about that, but at the same time, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk. It turns out 25% of my grade is based on class participation. So I was like, all right, I'm going to say 
two things a class, maybe three, depending yeah, that, on when you told me that. I mean, there was never any chance of me going back to school ever right. again anyway, because um, school sucks. <laughs> I'm still like trapped yeah. in that middle school mentality of like, oh, no school, question. school sucks. Homework sucks. I don't ever uh, want to go to school again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when you told me that uh, 25% of your grade is class participation, that that sealed the door on me ever, ever doing that because yeah. I, I think I went through three, we went to film school, the same film school, uh, for the same three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure I ever spoke up in class unless it was required of me to do so. If I was called on or if I was, we were going around the room or something. Uh, I, I kept silent. I spoke up very rarely in our critical studies classes. Um, but this, but it, you know, we were in screening rooms. We're all facing one direction. Uh, the band. Um, <laughs> so those are good classes. Um, uh-huh. Whereas this, we're all sitting around a table like 12 angry men. Um, oh, my. So you can't help but see everybody and, and the teacher's at the end of the table and he sees if people aren't talking or whatever. He, he wasn't calling on anybody or whatever, but, uh, but he'll notice. And there's only 15 of us there. Um, oddly enough, here's something that struck me as odd, and I don't know why. but So there's 15 of us in a class about Alfred Hitchcock. Ten are women five are men i don't think of and in fact an entire week is going to be devoted to a feminist critique of alfred hitchcock um i don't think of hitchcock as being a a filmmaker who particularly appeals to women i mean he appeals to anybody who loves movies obviously but i thought at the very least it would be half and half uh so it seems odd to me is that this is just your hitchcock class like that's not that's not representative of the, the, no, the film program as a whole. Just my Hitchcock class. Huh. Isn't that strange? Yeah, it is strange. Just an odd happenstance. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I feel bad saying that because there are people that said like good things, but again, it was more just the way people talked over each other and just, it really seemed like people were very eager to get out what they needed to say. Yeah. And, uh, but here was the fun thing. Shortly after, so again, people with a lot to prove to one another, maybe to themselves. Um, after that, I went to a screening, uh, Free State of Jones, and I got there early. And so I was sitting there and I was overhearing, you know, the critics. And I heard them being insufferable in a different way, yeah. which is just being really reductive and dismissive. And I thought, now here, I, I'm amongst my people now, <laughs> you know. And so just over the course of the day, I was able to see how I have evolved in my own insufferability. Um, but maybe one of the most interesting developments of the day was that, uh, so Dan had told me about this instructor and had mentioned that this guy had done his dissertation recently. He had just gotten his PhD. Uh, is, had done his dissertation on um, Christian film, specifically its its relationship to Hollywood. And I thought, and Dan said, you should talk to him about that. I said, I am absolutely going to talk to him about that. And so after the class, I said, hey, Dan Langford said that I should uh, talk to you. And he goes, oh, hey, all right. That's And so we started talking about, uh, I told him about more than one lesson. We talked about Christian film because doesn't know a lot of people that have seen these movies. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was a good conversation. Um, I did, as I mentioned in the movie journal, I did m- insult him 
maybe. Oh, you didn't tell the story though. I didn't tell the story. Yeah. Uh, so he's very tall. Uh huh. He's like six, eight. I would venture to say, did you a ask him how the weather was up there? No. B, uh, assume that he must be good at basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, both or C, did you mention that traditionally very tall people tend to have shorter lifespans? (laughs) You're three for three, David. Um, (laughs) and then I called him stretch. So no, what I, uh, we were talking and cause we were walking out of the building, uh, together and then we, we were going to be going separate ways. So we stopped and we were talking. I realized, and I, then I realized like I have to move my head to see his face. Uh Like I have to crane my neck up. And that's when, uh, as we were talking, I, this is how I chose to say it. I said, I said, if you don't mind my saying so, you are off puttingly tall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What did he, what could he have said to that? (laughs) Nothing. Because I'm an asshole. Uh-huh. Now, I will say, he's our age. Okay. So that does make a difference. Right. Because though he has a PhD, though he is in an authority position, I've been out of school for a while. Right. And also, I work from home. I have a boss, but I don't see her on a regular basis. Uh-huh. I've been accountable to me for a long time. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, he goes, he goes, Oh yeah. You know? And I said, I'm sorry. That was probably really insulting. I was, Hey, you know, it's, it's fine. And, uh, so then we, we continue to talk and he, I had mentioned, uh, there's a, there's a film podcast, uh, called God awful movies. And it is three, uh, atheists commenting on Christian film. I can't imagine anything worse. <laughs> um, it sounds like the height of insufferable internet snark. Can you imagine I just how horrible I, that? Yeah, must I guess be? I just can't imagine. I'm trying to see from their point of view. Like, why did you care enough to start a podcast about this? It's like what reason other than mean spiritedness is there to start such a podcast? I can't think of one. I don't know. It's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel at that point. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't even listen to like, how did this get made? Like, right. And that's not even as specific. Yeah. yeah that's not, they're at least picking on someone their own size. Yeah. Uh, and I won't even listen to that. So Any podcast devoted to bad movies is just not for me. And that's, and you know what? That's actually one of the things that I liked about, what the fuck are you watching? Yes. Is it, it wasn't bad movies. Sometimes they were bad movies, yes. but more than anything, it was, what are these? Yeah. These are strange, you know, reflecting skin, yeah. uh, parents, <laughs> you know, very strange movies that were often seen as bad, but more than anything, it's just strange. Um, that I can get behind all day long. But anyway, so as I was, as, uh, the professor and I were talking about this, um, he mentioned, I talked about God awful movies. He's like, Oh, so it's like a religious version of the flop house. I was like, Oh yeah. I said, Oh, the flop house. Yeah. That's a, I know that as a podcast. I and it's like, he just referenced not necessarily a deep cut, but that's a pot, you know? And I said, I said, Oh, do you listen to podcasts? Cause I already had mentioned more than one lesson. He goes, yeah. He goes, I listened to some movie podcasts. And I said, well, aside from my Aside from more than one lesson, my higher, my much higher profile podcast is called Battleship Pretension. And he gave 
a look of genuine surprise. I know because I've been watching Lie to Me. <laughs> and uh, that's yeah, you have to have listened to the movie journal to so to get that. Um, <laughs> so he he goes, "Your battleship pretension." And I said, well, I'm on half of it. Yes. And, uh, he goes, yeah, I've heard, I've listened to that. Uh, and I said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Tyler from Battleship Pretension. He goes, wow, that's great. <laughs> and now he said, that's great. I don't know. I don't think he was referring to the show. Um, he didn't say I do listen. He said, I have listened. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. remains to be seen, you know, <laughs> this might hurt my grade, David. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, it's really neat when people, uh, know who you are now. It's not like he heard my voice and said, Hey, wait a second. It wasn't that, but once I had said it, it's like, Oh, that's, it's a thing that he knew. And it, uh, it was a nice boost. I liked it. That's awesome. It's all, uh, it's all happening, David. Yeah. What's his name? His name is Ben Sampson. Thanks for listening, Ben. Absolutely. Let's, I hope you hear this and I'm sorry about that tall thing. Yeah, I'm sorry, on Tyler's behalf. So, yeah, that tall thing as well. We um, at Battleship Pretension have nothing against tall people. No, unless uh, they are seven feet or above, in which case that is too tall. <laughs> um, we also have nothing against our sponsors. That's well, not as long as they're paying us. As long as they're sponsors, yeah, we got we zero will, problems. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of sponsors, we do have a couple. And I will say what they are and say what their product is and the services they provide. Okay. Um, so, uh, and David, we are not being paid to say this. Wait, That's actually the exact opposite. <laughs> okay. So this episode is brought to you by the film Woe, W-O-E, which has a running Indiegogo funding campaign. Woe tells the story of Grace, an elderly woman struggling with the loneliness of old age. She attempts to fill her days by keeping busy with household tasks, but dreams of being young again. Now she believes she's found her outlet in her granddaughter, Sophia, who is a young and beautiful high school student. Everything that Grace once was. It's a film about how often the people closest to us can go completely unnoticed. Now, the film is made by two, is being made by two New York Film Academy students, So they're film students, which means, of course, that they need your help to reach their $2,500 budget. With less than two weeks left, they are almost there. They're very close. I believe they're 91% funded. Uh, But they still need your help. Um, So click on the ad at battleshippretension.com to help fund Woe. This episode is also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now, Mubi is proud to feature the exclusive online premiere of avant-garde maverick Peter uh, Cherkaski. I believe is how you say that. Peter Cherkaski's The Exquisite Corpus, a dreamy mashup of softcore cinema. The the director takes various erotic films and combines them, often manipulating the celluloid itself, creating a sensual, humorous, gruesome, and ecstatic cinematic dream. Now, this is a short film. It's 18 minutes long. Um, Sounds great. I watched it. Yeah. Um, I did not... I guess because it was short, I didn't think to talk about it on our uh, uh, movie journal. And we're talking about it now. But uh, (laughs) it's kind of... 
understandably it's crazy it's an experimental film but it's really interesting um and the the soft core films that it's use that it uses are not new they are older uh black and white and it's just uh i can't really begin to describe it it's an odd experience that doesn't declare itself as an as an odd experience immediately it's something that sort of evolves over the or over the case of 18 minutes um and when so as i was looking and it said you know he manipulates the film itself um i didn't know what that meant until i saw it and then i thought okay i got it i see all right i gotta watch this yeah it's really interesting um okay but anyway uh to finish up this uh ad so there is a special offer for you the listener of battleship retention you can try mubi free for one month just go to mubi.com that's m-u-b-i.com slash battleship to redeem now I also want to tell you guys about Tweaked Audio. Uh, TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, they look great and they sound great, uh, and we are avowed uh, users uh, of them o- over here at Battleship Retention, mm-hmm. and we want you to be as well. We want you to be part of this uh, this cult of uh, the Tweaked Cult. Um, I want you to drink that Tweaked Kool-Aid. Um, they do not make Kool-Aid yet. Yet. Um, as soon as they're they still do, in beta, and they, yeah, they'll send us some sample Kool Aid, and then we'll let you know how it goes. Um, TweakedAudio.com. Uh, the, all these things are um, already available at a low, low price. But if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price, and no shipping charges. So go to TweakedAudio.com and use the offer code Pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. This is a a topic that's been um, much on your mind of late. Yeah, and I can't can't think what started it off. Um, I think it was a a back and forth you and I had, um, Mm -hmm. but I still don't remember how it started, but... um, but the the topic is misanthropic films, which is to say um, films that either explore the darker sides of humanity. But I actually am moving a little bit away from that in the movies that I listed. Okay. And I think movies that just do not have a high opinion of humanity. Um, and it's going to be, and as we talk about this, I think this discussion will, I think the topic itself will probably evolve a little bit. Um, because when I think of a misanthrope, it is, uh, this person is someone who has a low opinion of humanity mm-hmm. and I think also finds humanity irredeemable. Um, I, I think of a, a misanthrope as somebody that doesn't have any hope in humanity and just feels like it's something to be put up with and navigated, but 
this person gave up on the 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 not merely inherent goodness but the possible goodness in humanity i think this person can acknowledge that there are good things to be found in humanity but they are vastly outweighed by the bad things uh, whether it be human achievement or human nature that's what i think of as a misanthrope but maybe that's too extreme of a view um see i think um that is a brand of mis- misanthropy i guess um but I feel like what you're describing is cynicism. Yeah. And I think, um, which I, I find cynicism to be kind of, sometimes I think people confuse cynicism with skepticism, but I think cynicism is kind of a passive state, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think misanthropy is more of an active distaste. Okay. <laughs> which is why when I think of, um, cause yeah, you sent me y- your list and I think a lot of that, um, gave me an idea of what you were talking about. Um, but I think a lot of like, we're going to talk about film noir. Oh, uh, I'm sure a ton, yeah. but I think a lot of those are more cynical than misanthropic. Weirdly, yeah. when I think of misanthropic films, um, a lot of where my mind goes is to comedies that are misanthropic. It, you know, you mentioned burn after, burn after reading. That's a great one. Yeah. Like that's a, uh, a movie that is, nihilistic really um, yeah nihilism fatalism cynicism and mis- uh, misanthropy yeah. were all common themes here um but one thing i do want to point out that, that that occurred to me is that i think we're talking about our films that are um intentionally misanthropic that are aware of their misanthropy because i think I, think I, don't, a lot, I don't know if I'm thinking about okay. that initially. Because I think a lot of big studio action movies, like a lot of your your Michael Bay or Simon West um, type of movies, are uh, do take a pretty dim view of humans. Uh, uh, you know. Yes, but I but I think they do it by accident. Yes, so I yeah. guess these are movies that are willing to explore the shittiness of of humanity, <laughs> yeah. whereas those just kind of fall into it. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like Bad Boys 2 is one of the most morally reprehensible films I've ever seen in my life. Yep. Um, but it's not about that. It's just, um, just blithely destroying human life and, yeah. and homes and property and uh, not um, and all for entertainment. And I find that I find that more depressing than. Uh, some of these incredibly depressing movies we're going to be talking about. You know, appropriately, last week, uh, we hearkened back to our very first episode, uh, in which we talked about violence in film, and uh-huh. uh, we talked about history of violence, and a big movie that we talked, as a movie that got it right, and one of the movies that we talked about is getting it wrong, was Bad Boys 2. That is our... That is kind of our... One of our whipping boys is Bad Boys yeah, 2. Rightfully so. Like, it's I terrible. feel... Cause I paid to see it in a movie theater Oof. and I no, I feel gross about that. Yeah. Like I, feel, I worked at a movie theater, thankfully. <laughs> uh, like I, I, I feel like I did like, I need to like, I still need to balance my karma for that. Like $8 <laughs> and 50 cents or whatever I spent. Um, it's like a carbon yeah. footprint situation. Yeah. A celluloid yeah. footprint. Um, the situation actually, when I saw bad boys Two, uh, if I recall, was I was on vacation with my family in the Wisconsin Dells. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out another family that was from like that my that we knew 
was also on vacation in the Dells at the same time. Hmm. Uh, I guess that seems, it's like, I'm saying that like it's crazy, but it's like, hey, you live in St. Louis, the Dells, there's like, it's not that far. Uh, it seems drive. like a bit of a drive. I guess, yeah. Um, but, um, and they decided, my family, that family, they were going to spend a day at the water park. If you know me, especially if you know me, what is this, like 11 years ago at this yeah. point, whenever, uh, I'm not hanging out at a water park, park all day. Yeah. So I basically dropped my parents off and, I, and like took their car and I was like, all right, I'll pick you guys up at the water park later. I had to like essentially took the role of the parents, dropped the yeah. rest of my family off and spent the day um, at the movies with a double feature. Now this is odd because you used to be on the swim team. Yes, before this is before that. Yes. I got like all my swimming out of my system by age like 17 got and then I never okay. needed to swim again. Yes. Um, I have since been in a swimming pool again, but that's a very, a fairly recent um, uh, development. Okay. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I went to the movie theater where I saw what was playing and that I had time to see two movies. I saw, uh, what was it called? American Wedding. Yeah. Uh, AKA American Pie three. Yeah. And bad boys two. That was my double feature. Uh, a part of me wishes I had just sat at the water park and yeah. <laughs> stared at the sun or something. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Bad boys two is gross. All right. So yes, uh, all that is to say we will be, um, talking about movies that are, there might be one or two on my list that are that don't seem totally aware of what they are doing and how mm-hmm. they are exploring humanity but for the most part uh, it's fairly overt now i found myself uh thinking in terms of directors and then okay. at the end just kind of random movies here or the, here and there um that i consider to be somewhat um misanthropic um so i can list some of these directors and we can just stop where we want and kind of go through that, or uh, we can go movie by movie. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of my, like I mentioned noir, I mentioned dark comedies. I'm kind of thinking in terms of groupings like that. But okay. uh, yeah, why don't, we, why don't we hear some of your directors? Okay, well, number one with a bullet is Neil Abute. Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy. And I've got three titles here specifically In the Company of Men. Your friends and neighbors, uh-huh. and the shape of things. Yeah, yeah, those are all very um, upsetting movies. The shape of things, see, like I remember liking when I saw it, but I don't think I ever need to see it again because it seems to be like I talked about with comedies. Like it seems to take some sort of glee in its in yeah. its misanthropy. Oh, no question. And an argument could be made that Nurse Betty is somewhat misanthropic. You know what I mean? Like even the positive characters are positive because they have amnesia, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> right. and they, they don't know any better basically. Um, but, uh, yeah, just if you watch these films, let's, let's stick with these three. You watch these films. I think this is a man who looks at the people around him and just says, I see nothing uh-huh. worth caring about investing in. These people are terrible. And I do think, especially your friends and neighbors is just don't get me wrong. I think a lot of these are really good movies. Yeah. I love in the company of men. Um, but your friends and neighbors is work because (laughs) 
you know, I, I frequently will talk about the idea of a character. There are characters I don't like, but still sympathize with. Um, and those movies are still movies that I absolutely love. This, I don't like anybody. I don't sympathize with anybody. I wish a horror movie would break out in the middle and just <laughs> kill them all. Um, and it's just, but also the way they're written is so sharp and so incisive and just the fact that the characters are so they're so well spoken but the way that it's almost like the smarter they are the better spoken they are the more tools they have with which to be cruel to one another um but even the ones that aren't necessarily cruel are still self-absorbed and maybe oblivious to the needs of others and you know, I, I think I could see by the end of this discussion, I will have lost all my energy. <laughs> uh, and not that I have that much in the first place, but this is a movie that when I talk about it, I have like a, I have a physical reaction to think, to remembering that movie. Um, it's funny. I don't know if you have the same, uh, experience with your friends and neighbors, but I think this is maybe just part of growing up. I think when I was like in high school, when your friends and neighbors came out, what year is it? 97? Uh, maybe, maybe later, but I don't remember exactly. Um, so I think I was in high school when it came out and I think at that point I was like, Oh, this movie is telling the truth. Yeah. This is a truth telling movie. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't feel that way anymore. I still have respect for it, but I think there's a, uh, I think Neil Butte is one of the, is the kind of writer who you maybe discover different things about depending on where you are in your life when you approach him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause there are other movies that are misanthropic, um, that I loved in high school that I don't really like at all now. Yeah. Um, like very bad things. Um, Oh, I forgot about very bad things. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, that's the movie is hateful. It's, it's, it, it's so cruel. It takes, uh, that's one that really takes glee. Uh, yeah. It's, it's like what I said bad people and then a horror movie breaks out and literally kills them all. And I can't wait. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the more immature me found that exciting. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just because I didn't have enough, uh, experience of the world to, to, to know that that wasn't as deep as it seemed, as it yeah. seemed like, you know, but when you're, I don't know when you were a weirdo kid, like I was and probably you were and probably most people who listen to this, uh, sure. This podcast and you feel like you don't fit in. Um, and something, perhaps you're uh, too tall <laughs> sure. and you feel like yeah, a misfit. Just off putting Lisa. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then a movie comes along and sort of says, uh, yeah, everyone's fucking horrible. Yeah. It feels like a revelation. Uh, you know, it feels like a movie like very bad things is on yeah. your side. And I think it doesn't take too long. I think for most people, um, to, to grow out of that. Uh, yeah. But well, I guess the difference that I'm pointing out is that I'm not really interested in watching very bad things again anymore. Right. Um, your friends and neighbors, uh, and other Neil Butte things are movies that I still find some value in, even though I, uh, approach them from a very different point of view than I did when I was 17 or whatever. Yeah. If for no other reason than because he does craft some interesting characters, I think that might be one of the best characters Jason Patrick has ever played. Uh, maybe the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and it's just and it is very well written but it's you know it's it really examines the dark side of human nature and just how selfish people can be um but yeah and i definitely see what you mean that these are in many cases these are movies that i probably thought were you know fucking great man uh <laughs> beforehand uh, but i think you know you get older and you grow out of it, but I think some of it has to do with you experience more life. And part of experiencing life means your relationship to other people changes. You know, it could be you fall in love in a, in a, in a very real way, a Mm -hmm. way where you are actually embarking on your future with this person could also be that you, you lose somebody and you come to realize, Oh, the value of human life. Once you lose something, you realize how valuable it can be. Um, and so, but at the same time, there still are some really, really shitty people out there and everybody has the ability to be that. And sometimes we are that there are some times when I have been remarkably cruel to my own wife, the person that I love more than anybody mm-hmm. else in the world. And yet somehow I find myself, I kind of step outside myself and think, Wow that is astonishingly bad what you just did and what you just said. Um, and there are times when, and so if you were to just, if somebody were to just peek in on that, Mm -hmm. that argument and see the way I treat Jen and also the way in those moments she treats me, they would say, if this is what love looks like, (laughs) then no, thank you. Right. Um, but I, and I think that's what your friends and neighbors is. It just, shows people that are living that all the time. People that are only thinking about what they want um, and thinking about what they are entitled to. And I think in most of my, uh, of my worst arguments with Jen, it usually can be boiled down to both of us want what we want and we don't care much about what the other person wants. The minute you start caring about that, the argument tends to wane a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, I think, you're, you're you're getting to something that I'm um, noticing in some of the films that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is the 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 humanity behind inhuman behavior, yeah, uh, or inhumane behavior or whatever. Um, and maybe that's why I find it so compelling in in comedies. I, I kept coming back to movies that are comedies, but that sort of uh, and noir does does this too um it it treats its characters making selfish um and cruel decisions as almost like a matter of course like yeah. like in a lot, so many noir movies it's like maybe this person was a good good person but then this pretty lady and this much money showed up yeah what else were they going to do of course yeah. they went they went rotten um uh but also in uh, it, to get back to comedies, uh, one that was on my list is Crimes and Misdemeanors, sure. which I think um, Woody Allen, at least on screen, <laughs> uh, I don't want to talk about uh, the way he's behaved uh, off screen, but there's a, he's a uh, there's a lot of humanism in his work. Yeah. So then to also take um, to take that um the 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 sympathy that he has for some of his characters he always then he always has a few characters that are 
underwritten and uh, sort of plot points. That's no. a, there's a lot of problems with Woody Allen and I still like a lot of his movies, no. but um, to take that, to take his humanistic instincts toward his, like at least his main characters and then apply that to something like um, Martin Landau in no. crimes and misdemeanors uh, is maybe more unsettling, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and especially because it's funny on top of that. Yeah. I think the idea of, because I because I said that the way I look at, at uh, misanthropy is the idea of looking at humanity and seeing it as irredeemable, but I do feel like, and maybe this is probably the the, the Christian in me coming out. The idea that before something is irredeemable, it first must be corrupted. Um, okay. Either it is, you know, inherently corrupted or just it's only a matter of time before something that is good will be corrupted. And that's, that gets to that film noir thing that you're talking about, which mm-hmm. is somebody who is otherwise pretty good. And then something comes along, comes along that awakens their selfishness, their inherent rottenness. Mm-hmm. And then they give into that. And I think where the, where a film goes from merely being, you know, cynical, being passive as you're talking about to being aggressive is when it says, well, of course they do everybody would. Mm -hmm. And there's a real, you know, painting with a broad brush. Uh, and it starts with an, it's, it's a weird version of sympathy, which it says like, it's (laughs) like, well, Hey, you know, this person was tempted and they gave in and you know, wouldn't you? And then it goes, yes, you would (laughs) as I would, as we all would. And I think it, I think it goes, yeah, I think you're right. I think misanthropy is a lot more in your face and it's, it's more of a, it's more of like a, like an ideology uh-huh. than cynicism. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and Neil LeBute and we, we can move on to other directors, other genres, but, uh, but he's somebody that, I mean, his movies, I think maybe one of the reasons they make me feel bad is because I do probably recognize certain instincts of my own in them. And uh, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, now, I hadn't thought to group by director, so I don't have as many of those. But someone did occur to me, uh, a director that I, I want to know if you have on your list, who has, I think, misanthropic films come up in more than one of his films. And that's Robert Altman. I have two of his movies on here, yes. Um, which ones do you have, out of curiosity? I have Shortcuts and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Okay. Um, I would put MASH on there uh, as well. Um, I, I, I thought keep, about I keep it. going to comedies for some reason. I think of mash as misogynist, not misanthropic. I, I think it can certainly be both. <laughs> sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely, definitely shortcuts, which is another one that I, I watched it what, uh, about a year ago. I think we talked about it on the, on the movie journal. I rewatched mm-hmm. it and I hadn't seen it since I was in high school, um, in, in the intervening years. And, um, didn't like it as much the second time. Yeah. And also that it felt more sad and mean spirited to me than it did in, in high school. I think because I had probably a very mean spirited look at the world in in high school. Um, and, and it just seemed to, to fit, but it is, yeah, it, I mean, it's so long shortcuts and it's such a tapestry of misery. Yeah. I think at the 
uh, again, I don't want to make this whole episode about like uh, what a little shit I used to be in high school, yeah. but I thought of it as a tapestry of humanity as it really is at that yeah. time. And now I just see it as like, yeah, this is just miserable. Everyone's miserable. Everyone's behaving in shitty ways um, with a disregard for other people, um, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't affect them. Uh, uh, yeah, it's. I find it upsetting. I don't really like that movie very much. Well, and and that's the thing is, there's a lot in the movie that I love. Um, but yeah, when you think about it, what are what are the things that actually bond these characters? What's the thing that actually bonds these characters together that they're all experiencing at the same time? Is a catastrophe? Yeah, is an earthquake? Um, and you know, an argument could be made that it's like, okay, well the this is a thing bigger than themselves that will have an impact on them. And maybe this will literally shake them out of their own selfishness and self-centeredness. Um, and I don't think it does. I think, uh, if anything, it's like, this is the one it's maybe making the argument that do I head down that path? I want to hear it. I don't mean to say that, uh, uh, Altman is uh, a religious man by any stretch. I don't think he is, um, but it's He's almost not like anything now. Oh, <laughs> so maybe he really is uh, <laughs> uh, in one way or another. But um, it's almost as though God Himself is saying, "Like enough, I can't stand to watch these assholes anymore." <laughs> um, but uh, but at the same time, when you just see the way people react afterwards even the people that do have, do move slightly towards reconciliation, like Andy McDowell and Bruce Davison with Lyle Lovett. Uh-huh. That's where the cynicism kicks in. And it's, she says, I-, I like to see the cake that you baked for my son who is now dead. And, and he says, I'm sorry, I threw it away. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, and he doesn't say it with any mouse. He's very sad about it. But at the same time, it's just, yeah, you don't even get that good for you that you guys are actually trying to be humans to each other. Good for you. But you know what? Kids still dead and the cakes thrown away. Uh, so go fuck yourself. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. And McCabe and Mrs. Miller is an interesting one because, you know, he tends to make anti genre movies and hit McCabe and Mrs. Miller is his anti Western where you have with Mrs. Miller, especially Julie Christie, you have a very strong woman who, uh, you know, we see that McCabe is kind of cowardly and kind of lazy and he's not the Western hero that we would like him to be. Um, he mumbles a lot and he's just kind of, kind of goofy and she's the one in charge. She's the one that makes the decisions and stuff. But when the chips are down and everybody else is just a shitty person. Um, so it's really just down to these two, but when the chips are down and during the climax, you do see McCabe sort of, step it up a little bit, which is to say he can't run away anymore. So I guess I'll get my gun and shoot with the bad guys. But McCabe is not a likable person. So while I don't necessarily want him to die, I'm not going to be shedding any tears for him. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mrs. Miller, when faced with the same situation, she just spoilers, just goes to an opium den and just uh, escapes in her own way and whatever strength, whatever courage, whatever bravery was in her character, when things get tough, it evaporates. And 
to me, it's just, yeah. And by the end, it's just a movie that is, I, I think it's great. I think it's a really wonderful movie. Um, and I think the fact that it's operating within a genre that so often shows nobility and heroism mm-hmm. and it's doing the opposite of that. I think that for me cushions the blow a little bit, but I think in the end it's a movie that is just, it's visually ugly. Um, it's not the romantic Western uh, countryside that we see. It's instead it's snowy and wet and muddy and gross. Um, it's visually ugly and then it's internally ugly as well. Um, and I think there are probably, you know, I think an argument could be made that, uh, Dr. T and the women is a misanthropic film. Yeah. And the player and the player. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's cynical, certainly about, uh, movies. Yeah. Uh, or the movie industry at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it also has a main character. It's like, it's like, it's like a noir in the sense that it has a main character who is a bad guy in a sense. He murders someone. Yeah. And it's, I do. I I think that he, as he got older, uh, and I think starting like in two thousand and beyond. Uh, so I guess for six years after that. Um, so movies are you talking about? Gosford Park. Okay. The company. Um, the company. Prairie Home Companion. I, I those really are, like a Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, I think those are fairly humanistic <clears throat> films. Um, I liked The Company too, but I kind of don't remember it very well now. I don't really either. But that's one. But I remember where, it because I remember liking it because we lived in Chicago. Yeah, and it was shot in Chicago. Yeah, Joffrey Bellet. And it was, and it was uh, all sorts of places that I was that I recognized. Um, other, uh, you got me thinking about directors now, and I'm having a okay. Blast. I'm sorry. Um, no, oh, no, it's a good thing. Okay, it's, yeah, it's a good thing. Um, uh, Swedish director Lucas Moodyson. Do you know uh, who he is? He's, he had a hit. Uh, yeah, the name art, sounds familiar. Uh, he had an art house hit, I guess, a year or two ago called We Are the Best. Um, but uh, I mostly want to talk about the movie Lilia Forever. Okay. Which is um, one of the most uh, upsetting and depressing movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, but I think it's also um, quite sweet, um, but also completely uncompromising. It's a story about a poor Ukrainian girl who is kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. And it doesn't really give you much hope to hold on to in, in that, in that story. But it also is, um, so sympathetic of her as, uh, sympathetic with her as a character. Um, and so, so sweet. And, um, there's a certain amount of hope in Lilia forever I just said it doesn't give you any hope, but there's a certain amount of optimism maybe in the fact that Lilia hangs on to a part of her humanity through all of, all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, that's a, uh, that's a fantastic movie. Um, but another movie I want to talk, uh, another director I want to talk about, um, because here's where he's different from Neil LeBute. Okay. Is that this is a director who shows us in most of his films, the absolute worst of humanity. But I don't think you would call him a misanthrope. So this might not fit because I think he, I think his mission statement is these people are lovable too, even if they are awful, even if they are in the case of Dylan Baker's character, a pedophile. Sure. Uh, and that's Todd Solondz. Yeah. And I've only seen two of his films actually. Okay. Um, which is Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness. 
Okay. And I don't think I've seen anything beyond There's that. Palindromes, storytelling. Seen, no. Uh, Life during wartime. No. And then the new one is Wiener Dog. That just right. Literally just, it comes out tomorrow, so I don't think you've seen it. <laughs> I have not. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I don't think of him as as misanthropic at all. I think you know when you look at Dylan Baker and Phil and like Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, in Happiness. I mean, that is he is extending them as much humanity as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I almost want to do a companion episode and talk about humanistic directors. And I would say he is near the top of the list. If if he can find humanity in Dylan Baker's character, he's humanistic to the point of it being a provocation. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And just, and it's something that like, you know, it's weird. I find my, it sounds so strange. I find myself wanting Christians to see his films. Uh Um, and I say this having only seen the two of them, but like, because, you know, definitely, obviously, Christians are, are supposed to embrace justice and help those that can't help themselves. And that means children, you know, in the case of happiness and Dylan Baker's character. And, you know, still put him in jail and that sort of thing. And But while doing that, never judging him or or feeling that we are better than he is or feeling that he is irredeemable and in fact being willing to forgive him if he were to do something to us or our children. And that idea, like that is one could say radical forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that's what Todd Solondz is doing. Now it's not mm-hmm. that he's necessarily forgiving. I don't think it goes that far, but I mean, this is about as the way he treats him is almost more forgiving than forgiveness because it just allows us to feel bad for him in the midst of doing the most reprehensible thing a person can do. It is astonishing. Yeah. Um, you, uh, should see, and you should show all your Christian friends, uh, palindromes. Cause it's, oh, it's an abortion. thing. It's right? that plus it's abortion. <laughs> yeah. It's all that with abortion thrown in. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and then I, I, I need to see life during wartime because that's a, a sequel, but none of the characters are played by the same people in happiness. Right. Yeah. Which is something he does. Cause apparently in Wiener dog, um, Greta Gerwig plays Heather Matarazzo's character from welcome to the Dollhouse. It's not about her. It's like an ensemble movie, but, yeah. um, who also that character died in palindromes. <laughs> so he brought her back from the dead and recast her as Greta Gerwig. So he was doing this shared universe thing yes. long before the MCU. Yep. And even like, killing a character and then bringing them back. That's, that's actually, that actually goes back to the comic books themselves. Uh (laughs) Uh, That's really something. Um, So, okay. Now we can do a couple of things here as far as the, go ahead. One more direct. Well, I got, we already, we already mentioned burn after reading, but the Coens in general have not, they, in some of their movies, they've been very positive and hopeful. And in some of their movies, quite the opposite. Um, There's, there's a, there's a, trilogy of cynicism in uh no country for old men burn after reading in the serious man yes i don't think and you know what so i have here no country for old men and burn after reading i think a serious man is cynical mm-hmm. i don't think it's misanthropic because okay. it does sympathize with a good number of those characters okay and it wants the best from them and it wants the best for them and from them and i think it sees the possibility of that um no country for old men however I think is cynical and I think it is, you know, and I know a lot of it comes, comes from uh, Cormac McCarthy, but even their decision to make the film, I think is something that they needed to deal with 
uh, emotionally. And then when they follow, follow that up with burn after reading, it really does feel like they're in a place in their lives that where they need to deal with the world. Like they're looking at the world around them and they need to make sense of it somehow in their movies. And so, yeah, no country for old men. That's one where there are characters that we like. And so there, I'd say it might be more cynical than misanthropic, but at the same time, you know, if you just listen to, if you just listen to, uh, Tommy Lee Jones monologues and, and his narration, he's a guy who I think, I think he doesn't have, he doesn't have much hope in humanity. So it's definitely pessimism. And it's almost like at this point, he's a bit too old to be a misanthrope. It has given way to just a, a, a passive assumption of mankind's brokenness and irredeemability. Um, but see, I don't know that I agree that that's how Tommy Lee Jones' character feel, feels, because I think that's kind of maybe how the movie feels. Mm. Whereas I think Tommy Lee Jones feels he has a, a sort of a recency bias in his uh, sure. opinion because he thinks things used to be better yeah. and they've gotten worse. And I think the movie's point of view is, uh, no, these things were always terrible. So then I think the movie in this case is more nihilistic than the most nihilistic character or not. I guess the most nihilistic character is Anton Chigurh. Sure. And that's why he's, um, most, uh, at home there. In fact, that's something I was going to talk about um, with in terms of uh, we'll get back to the Coens, but uh, Aguirre, the wrath of God, sure. Which is um, I, I think kind of, maybe, and maybe this is more cynical than missing topic, but the idea that m- madness is the only way to survive in, in nature. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like no country for old men is kind of the same thing. It's like, you have to be as, as nihilistic as, the world around you yeah. um, to where Anton Chigurh's character is the only normal one in the, in the movie in the, in terms of the, the world that the Coens have laid out. It's interesting. Actually, I would say that Tommy Lee Jones, I don't think he currently thinks that things used to be better. I think he recognizes that when he was younger, he saw the world as somehow redeemable or whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, but as he's gotten older, he even looks back and, you know, the opening, uh, narration is him telling a story about when he was, uh, is it when he was younger or is it something at least a few years old in which he's talking about this young, this young guy? Yeah. But he, but he, even in in the opening narration, he's talking about things being different because he says the crime you see these days, it's hard to take its measure. That's which I always remember. Is it because it's measure? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I always remember that it's, that he is comparing it to something. That's true. To, that is true. Past. Yes. Um, um, and when you, but it's not until, um, uh, Barry, what's the Barry Corbin, Barry Corbin's, yeah. I think speech about how, uh, someone two generations ago was yeah. like, got shot and left for dead for no good reason. That's yeah. when like, it starts to dawn on, on, on Tom Lee Jones. Like, Oh yeah, I guess maybe things uh, always were fucking yeah. terrible. Yeah. I guess that, I guess that is true. Um, so he's, it's weird to think of his character as, as having a, a, a form of ide- uh, idealism, even if you're idealizing the past. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he seems like a guy who is uh, pretty weather beaten at that point and uh, kind of knows how the, how the world works. Um, but do you see, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I finished your thought in the, cause I want to talk about the, the, the last. end. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
Uh, it almost, and that's actually what I was going to sort okay. of say is that I think it's a guy who romanticizes the past and goes from that to maybe romanticizing death and kind of seeing that as not merely the ultimate destination, but finds it at this point, a comfort that I don't have to live in this terrible world anymore. So you think that's what the dream about his father carrying fire up ahead and waiting for him is just about, it's about death. I, it feels like that's way too small of an interpretation. I think that's part of it. Um, and, and there's a certain there, but there's, but that's not a, it's not, I don't view it as a sad thing either. Like it's said with a fair amount of hope, it seems like a hopeful dream. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, cause I think it can be interpreted as, yeah, he's just, his father's just waiting for him to die yeah. <laughs> so they can be a happy family <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, but for some reason I see the, the, the fire in a, what does he say he's carrying it in, in a, in a horn or something? Yeah. Something like that. Um, I guess I see the fire metaphor as being some sort of ray of light, like some hope, like, well, it's like, definitely how it was talked about in the road, which is another Cormac McCarthy thing. Okay. It talks about like carrying on the fire in this case being the concept of morality and that kind of thing. So yeah. So I guess comparing I s- it with that, it's, uh, I'd say that's cor- correct. Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess I, that's, uh, that's kind of how I see it as Tommy Jones saying, if you look, even, even if the, even if I still think the movie thinks he's wrong, I yeah. think he's saying that if you look to the past, you can still find hope. Hmm. Um, uh, and I, and I weirdly don't think the movie agrees with him, hmm. uh, which is what makes that ending kind of bittersweet. It's weird. I actually, I guess it is his father who is the past, but it's about his father riding on past him. And so I see it as more the future. Hmm. but specifically the future, not like humanity is going to be better. It's this will all be over eventually. <laughs> um, and that's, that's okay. Um, but we do, we should, we should move on. Um, so yeah, do you want to talk about, uh, noir anymore? Uh, eventually I'm fine with ending on that, okay. but, uh, I'm going to just, uh, blast through a few filmmakers here. Um, okay. So we're still on filmmakers. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, cause I want to get. I want to go through three really quickly, okay. and then I want to settle on one who might be might be one of the most misanthropic filmmakers okay. ever. Can I throw one out though, um, just to season this, and we'll get back to sure. the directors. A director that I don't think of as misanthropic, and yet he made one of the most misanthropic films of the past few years, and that's David Fincher and Gone Girl. David Fincher is, in fact, the director that I'm talking about. Really? Yes. I don't see him as, as a misanthrope uh, at all. I look at Alien 3, I look at 7, Fight Club, okay, well, Social yeah. Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, and I see a lot of irredeemable humanity. Uh, I don't count, uh, I don't rate uh, Alien 3. It doesn't count. Having, um, having watched the assembly cut of Alien 3, <laughs> okay. it is more misanthropic uh, than the studio cut. But I think, and you know what? I think the studio doing what it did proved him even right, even more right than one would think. Um, I think Zodiac and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but we don't need to get into that. There don't need to be a oh, fight again. Good God. And The Social Network. Um, I think these are movies that really like their characters a lot. And part of the, like, I find it hard to, to paint a movie as being misanthropic when it has sympathy towards its own characters. Whereas I don't think Gone Girl has any sympathy toward anyone in the entire movie. Boy, that's true. Um, uh, 
I do feel, and I might throw the game in here as well, actually. Um, oh yeah, that's, and then that's Panic cool. Room. I don't remember, but uh, uh, I remember Panic Room. I don't like the game. I don't like Fight Club. You're wrong about the game. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time. Maybe I, yeah. I mean, I was wrong. I was wrong about Kill Bill for a decade. Yeah. But now I really like Kill Bill, so yeah. maybe I could go. I should go back and and rewatch the game. But I remember, yeah, really not not responding to that movie or responding to it in uh, a negative way. It's. So uh, what I'll say about, I think, The Social Network is that, yeah, I mean, it's Aaron Sorkin who who definitely has a, a certain flair to the way he writes. And and I think he enjoys writing these characters. I think he has a certain high opinion of them because they're very intelligent. But when you look at Mark Zuckerberg, I think he's seen as talented but pathetic. Um, and ultimately... But isn't the movie sympathetic toward his patheticness? To, uh, like isn't that at the end the clicking refresh at the end like don't you find that uh, I don't know it's sad I mean I guess like I guess pity is a form of sympathy but at the same time I don't think it's the same as being actually sympathetic towards them okay um, especially this idea of this guy is capable of hurting the people that he seems to care about and be very selfish and he's and the world has, by the way, rewarded him for that. Um, so that also talks about the world itself. And then just having him sit there at the end is just that. Oh, he's but deep down there's still this thing. But this thing is also very pathetic because let's not forget that he, with his selfishness, chased this girl away that he is now obsessed with. Because and one could then also make the argument that he's obsessed with the one thing he couldn't get. Um, and he's so used to getting his own way and acquiring the things that he wants that for him to, that he now is transfixed on this one thing because of that. I don't know. I, By this one th- are you saying this one person? This one person. Cause I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's about her. Uh, I think the one thing he couldn't get is actual affection. Sure. And so that's what she represents to him, but I don't think it's actually about her specific. I don't think she's like the one for him. I don't think it's that kind of romantic movie. But that's the thing. She could be, I don't think it's romantic. I think it could be, you know, it's too late for Eduardo. Like that was someone that he was friends Mm -hmm. with, that he had affection for and that had affection for him. And then he sabotaged that. It's too late for that. He also sabotaged this other thing. So, uh, maybe I can try to get that back. I don't think it has to do with her specifically or anything romantic. I think it has more to do with just, this is the thing that I, you know, it's, it's basically his rosebud. It's his sled. The sled itself is a symbol of a much larger thing. Um, but the larger thing is, but I think in this case, um, you know, actually I'll, I'm, I'm comfortable comparing the two. I'm, com- I'm comfortable comparing Zuckerberg to Charles Foster Kane in that they focus on the one thing that they couldn't get. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a sad thing, but it is also in this, in the case of Kane, it's something that was taken away from him. In this case, it's something that he drove away and right. maybe feels bad about that. But does he feel bad on a human level or does he feel bad because, He's he's now he now has everything that he wants uh, and he can get anything that he wants except this thing, uh, which is his own and its own his own fault for removing it from his own life. I don't know. It's I think it could go either way. And so I think it's just about the difference between you and me that I don't I guess I don't see that as being uh, as misanthropic as you do. I do think I mean, I would say. 
pathetic and pitiful is how he seems at the end and small. And, uh, and so I guess if you want to look at that, it's, that's somewhat close. You can't have sympathy without, you can't be sympathetic without someone being pathetic. Um, and so, uh, maybe there's an element there and I don't, I definitely don't think that of these movies, I don't think it's like the most misanthropic. Um, I think probably seven is. Well, see, okay, let's talk about seven. Okay. Cause here's why I don't think of it as misanthropic. And this is just about me, I think, or my interpretation of the film. I don't think seven takes a dim view of the world because I'm not convinced that seven takes place in the world. Okay. I think it's a fantasy that's movie essentially that takes place in sort of, sort of hell dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I just see, I, I don't see David Fincher trying to make parallels between the world of seven and our world. Right. It almost does seem like a Jacob's ladder or something type thing where if, if there were a reveal that this were all taking place in John Doe's like, uh, like sick and coma brain or something almost expressionistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's, it's hard for me to really see it as, as misanthropic because it's, it's just hell or purgatory. Maybe we can stick with hell. I think it's (laughs) fine. Um, but that's the thing is one can make the argument that the fact that the world he's depicting can be, pretty easily interpreted as hell. Um, uh-huh. It definitely is not a positive view of the world, but then also just the way the the very last line of the film, the narration of, you know, I think Morgan Freeman says, Ernest Hemingway said the world is a good place and worth fighting for. And he says, I agree with the second part. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess that's a version of hope, but it's also, I'm fighting for something that is not good. I'm fighting for something that is inherently bad. And maybe in that fight I can make, I can give hope to myself, but it's probably a lost cause. And, and just the fact that John Doe has a very low view of humanity and Mm -hmm. he is in his own way proven right. And he is, and he wins at the end. Yeah. You make a good case. Thank you. But I, it's oh, it's still hellish. Of. It re, I agree with you. Like it just <clears throat> does not. Like it doesn't. I know officially it takes place in Los Angeles. Do they ever say that? Actually, I mean, they, they sh- it's clearly shot. Yes, uh, in Los Angeles. Well, and that's the thing is, we know it was shot there. Um, I don't think they ever state it. And I think that actually goes a long way to saying what you're talking about, which is it's just any city because mm-hmm. in it doesn't matter where it is and it doesn't matter who these people are specifically. It's almost like dark city in that way. Yeah. Um, these Los Angeles just... before the downtown revitalization of the last like few years, I guess there's a number of movies that use Los Angeles's blighted downtown, formerly blighted downtown. Still, yeah. it is still blighted um, to represent sort of anonymous urban hellscapes yeah. like seven, but there's also uh Constantine um, does that, which you never saw. And then the midnight meat train is another one yeah. that I think the, I think the short story it's based on very clearly takes place in New York city. Hmm. Um, and the midnight meat train movie is to those of us who live here clearly shot in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but never says where it is. It's just supposed to be hellish. Well, and like downtown Los Angeles at nighttime, is an absolute ghost town. Not I mean, anymore though. Not was, anymore. Yeah, yeah, it was then. Yeah. Collateral. Even just a few years. Even just a few years ago, though. Um, yeah, I remember. 
being downtown at, I think, 7 p.m. a few years ago and just thinking, like, what? It just clears out. What yeah. happened? Um, but, yes, it is much more of a much more bustling uh, um, these days. Yeah. Seven, though, that's a movie that I loved and then hated, and now I like it again. I don't love it, but I like it again. I loved it, and then I thought the script is a little bit on the nose and clunky and that I also never need to watch it again because it's so damn depressing. And now I own it. Yeah, it is. And I got it for Christmas. I mean, gorgeous in a dark, like, you know, yeah, uh, dark way. But, um, all right. Uh, but at least we're in agreement that gone girl is, uh, takes, has no positive, nothing positive to say about people at all. Who is the most positive character? Is it Kim Dickens? Yes. I'd say maybe his sister is the most positive character. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that is a low view (laughs) of humanity. That film. Um, so, okay. Uh, I will just, uh, say a couple filmmakers here real quick and we can explore them if you want. I have often said that Christopher guest, I think is fairly misanthropic. Um, I don't know if he would ever say he hates his characters, but I think he sees the humor in having characters that are, I would say, irredeemably dumb um and incompetent although so i've got best in show waiting for guffman and for your consideration i do not include a mighty wind in that because i think the central core of Catherine mahara and eugene levy and the fact that their their song together is a real song mm-hmm. um that is beautiful i feel like that is a real core of it explores regret and even though they are both really silly at times, I think that's a re- there's real humanity there. Whereas, you know, when I'm watching Best, in- I lo- I love Best in Show, and I think Waiting for Waiting for Guffman is is often well, hilarious. As discussed on this very podcast, I think Best in Show is one of the three funniest movies ever made. It's up there. I can't argue with you. Um, and then for your consideration, actually, is a very interesting film. Did you ever see it? Uh, no. It's it's okay. Uh, it's I worked on uh, a movie that was on a studio lot that, for your consideration, was also shooting on. I remember seeing Ed Begley Jr. in, like, a caftan. I'm not sure what his character is supposed to be, but he had, like... Remind uh, me what that is. Like a a robe type of thing, but like a showy, like, embroidered robe thing. Okay. I'm not sure what his character is supposed to be, but I remember just, like, walking around uh, the Culver Studios lot... (laughs) it's it's an it's an interesting movie and i do think it's a very cynical film about hollywood um and the very last shot i think is where it's hard to say if it's misanthropic um but the very last shot is ugly and it is genuinely ugly and i won't even say how but it is and it's 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 more than just sad it is there i feel like there's real contempt in the last shot oh of the film. Um, it's also, uh, maybe I'll, I'll say this. I think it might be Catherine O'Hara doing like a, maybe not a career best, but as far as Christopher guest films, it might be her best performance in any of them. Um, so Christopher guest, uh, a couple of Kubrick films. I'd say Dr. Strangelove is pretty misanthropic. That's, yeah, when I talk about comedies, like that's yeah. definitely one of the, the top five, yeah. uh, dark comedies. And it's weird to think that way because not every character is a monster, 
but even the characters that mean well are incredibly inept mm-hmm. and stupid, but also just everybody is in it for themselves. You know, uh, the cold war is the essence of what I was talking about. Uh, an argument between me and Jen is not thinking about the other person. We only want what we want. Uh-huh. Um, and that is what the cold war, that's the cold war, uh, is a marriage argument writ large. Um, and then a clockwork orange is I think pretty misanthropic as well. And yeah. I've read the book and I know that he adapted one version of the book and it is a version that, uh, is misanthropic, but it, it leaves out the last three chapters or the last section, yeah. uh, which actually instills hope in mm-hmm. the, in the reader. Um, and so it's, so it's a function of the book, but the fact that he thought, Oh, this is a book I want to, uh, realize in a way yeah. that people can consume it, um, is interesting. Um, Larry Clark is someone that I thought of, uh, specifically kids and bully. Now that both might movies be, I've seen once and, uh, yeah, I think we're good. I'm good. I, I think they're both pretty incredible movies. Yeah. But Look, yeah. if I want to see shirtless guys, I'll just go to the beach. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it seems to be a thing he's, uh, interested in. Um, that's the thing after a while, I think I just got uncomfortable, not with the stories he's telling, but with how, how he makes them, I feel, I feel like there's something skeevy with him. Oh and yeah. I also saw another day in paradise, which isn't bad. Oh, um, okay. but I didn't see, what else did he do? Ken um, Park, Ken Park. And then, um, there's a recent one. Oh, is there, I think there's one that came out about like, like I think before or either right before I right after Ken Park that I like, why am I not? What's up rockers? What's up rockers? That's, That's what it. it's called. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see Ken Park. Um, but yeah, uh, now it might be that he has a low opinion of youth. That is possible. Um, considering that he tends to make movies about mm-hmm. younger people and seems to not have a high opinion of them. In kids, it's not comical. It's very tragic. In Bully, these characters are so dumb. It's all, it is, there's also a, a tragic quality to that. Yeah. But it is also it's almost like these kids are a lost cause. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I think that's it for filmmakers. Undoubtedly, there are a number of others. Um, I have not seen enough Hanukkah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I do have, so I have some film noir. It's more like, he's like scolding. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess he's misanthropic, but I don't think he like, I, I think as much as I like him, I think he often thinks he's better than his intended audience. And it's oh, that's kind of true. Like yeah, condescending yeah. toward them. Yeah. I guess it could be. Yeah. I'm not, it's saying I'm not misanthropic. I think I'm pretty good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm a person. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, now the question is, cause I haven't seen enough films by Lars von Trier to know if he is misanthropic or at least he is now. Cause from what I hear, breaking the waves is actually a very humanistic film. But, yeah, but it's also incredibly depressing. Yeah. But I know that Dogville um, is... Dogville uh, is not positive. Yeah. Um, I did see Antichrist, and that is... I have no intention of ever watching that movie. It's in many ways great. It might even be something of a masterpiece. But it is a very difficult film to watch, and it really does seem to... You know, it engages in, in real human emotion, but, I mean, it really sees just all parties as just selfish and unwilling to connect with one another. And it is tough sledding. 
because that yeah. will that is eventually physicalized and it's horrifying. You got me back on breaking the waves in Dogville. Okay. Um, because I I don't know, like a lot of the films we've been talking about have protagonists who are awful. Yes. And I think what's depressing about both breaking the waves and Dogville is that it has protagonists who are very good people, but are eventually destroyed by the world because they're sure because large ventures view of the world is that good people are vastly, vastly outnumbered by terrible, horrible, selfish people. Um, which is a different take, I guess. Yeah. Um, in some ways maybe more depressing. Yeah. Um, and then I had a movie here that I was going to talk about. I forget what it was. There was one I wanted to make sure we got to. Okay. And now I forgot what it was. Well, maybe I'll say it. Um, yeah, maybe. So I have a section of film noir and then I also have just various movies that jump out at me. Well, let me um, talk about, okay, we'll, we'll end with film noir. Let me talk about okay. wh- one very, one various movie. Let's or, see if it's on my list. This is another one that is by, it's a, I think a very misanthropic film by a director. I don't think it was misanthropic. Okay. And it's also a film that I saw differently when I was younger than I do now. Okay. Uh, Mike Lee's naked. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which I only recently saw in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. It upset me more. I watched it again. Not that long ago and it upset me more than it yeah. had, um, uh, when I, when I first saw it. Um, but I still think it's really good. Yeah. But I mean, Johnny is just, he's terrible. And I don't think I realized that as much when I was younger, just how yeah. terrible he is. But it's tough because I, I have to put that in context of the rest of Mike Lee and he's a remarkably humanistic director. Yeah. So I think, I don't know, maybe he feels bad for Johnny and, uh, I, I, I think like- he dislikes him, but he also, I also think he just feels like, oh, if only Johnny just had a different attitude or a different outlook, like he's doing this to himself. Oh, see, I think it's more, and other people, um, uh, I'm forgetting the word that I'm, it's, it's very late. Uh, and I don't know why I can't think of the word that I'm, it's more pathological is the word I'm looking for with Johnny in that it's almost, I think he's almost like a sociopath because he, yeah, kind of like Tony Soprano, he sees the good in people that he meets and he learns from them and he has sympathy from them in the moment, but then he has no problem with fucking them over and leaving them behind and taking what he's learned from them and using it for his own benefit. That's true. Um, and that's very upsetting. Yeah. It's not an easy movie to watch. I'll say that. Um, okay. So I'm just gonna, so if we're ending on noir, then I will just, uh, throw out some titles and I don't necessarily, we can explore them if you want <clears throat> alien. Okay. Cosmopolis. Haven't seen it. Funny games. We already talked about hockey. Yeah. So there will be blood. Okay. Okay. Well, let's stop on that. All right. What are you, what are your thoughts on, on that? So there's one lead, but there is, if there is a co, if there's a, a primary supporting character, it's Paul Dano. And one could say that Paul Dano could also represent all of the people that follow him, which could then be a representative of all religion. Okay. So that's an entire group. But then we have, I, I find myself remembering when I saw there will be blood for the first time, I saw it alone. And in the final scene, when Daniel Plainview is, uh, finished. No, 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 not yet. Okay. When he's chasing, 
Eli around with the bowling pin mm-hmm. and the people in my, it's, it's amusing, you know, and, uh, the people in my theater, they started, ugh, they started laughing around the time that Daniel is humiliating Eli and making him admit that God is a superstition and that kind of thing. And they start laughing at that, a very self-congratulatory shitty laugh. Um, wow. and then they, and then they, they're, they're, they're laughing a lot when it comes to, uh, him chasing him around with a bowling pin because it's, you know, goofy and, you know, kind of screwball and slapstick. What is wrong with those people? Uh, well, thankfully their laughter stopped when, uh, he murders him <laughs> with that bowling pin, uh, which is nice. Take that idiots. Yeah. But he I murdered do- their laughter. He murdered their smugness. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But I think that's the thing is I, so I have a hard time not thinking of that scene and thinking of, uh, you know, remembering that scene and thinking of that because, and this may sound, you know, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush, but undoubtedly those people were not sympathetic towards religion and they, and it's fun watching Daniel Plainview. There's no question about it, but we've also, we just saw him be remarkably cruel to his son. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when faced with the pot- uh, potential hypocrisy of religion, these people were back on board with him. And then at the end, it's, oh, shit. Right. He's bad, too. I, and so I think when you look at, I don't think he represents secularism because I think he's just completely selfish. I don't think he has an ideology, yeah. except for Daniel Plainview 100%. <laughs> um, and so I don't mean to, to say that, but if he is the antidote to religion, um, then we get, we have a moment of triumph when Eli is totally exposed and then, but then we actually see that taken to an extreme and we see just how ugly Daniel Plainview really is. And we've seen him murder before, uh, but that came from a place of, of rage and betrayal. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we like it, but I can understand it a little bit more. Betrayal is pretty rough. Um, now this is just not necessarily premeditated. He didn't invite Eli over, but it's like, well, as long as he's here, I might as well kill him. Um, and so I feel like it's just in the end, it's just a film that, I mean, I guess there's hope in the sun. I guess yeah. that is a character that is viewed fairly positively. But beyond that, I mean, it's a film that is just as bleak and stark as the countryside that it is shot in. Um, and uh, I'll have to watch it again. This is an excuse for me to watch it again. Nothing wrong with that. I'm glad I could help. Um, All okay. right. Uh, we got to wrap up. So, okay. um, uh, Struck by Lightning is a film that did not mean to be uh, misanthropic. <laughs> and that actually might be a, 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 a Von Trier situation. Yeah, you hate this movie. Or, or maybe a, a, a Hanukkah situation where, uh, yeah, I hate it so much because I think it's a film that thinks it is being very uh, liberating to people, mm-hmm. and all it ultimately is that Chris Culfer is better than everybody. Um, and I will use that to mention. Uh, I wanted to. We'll end with Noir, but like I wanted to end this on a light note. Okay. Uh, I'll throw in uh, Hateful Eight as well. I think that's a fairly misanthropic film, um, but with a note of hope. 
at the very end. Yeah, that's what I take away from the movie yeah. is the the end. Yeah, which is why I maybe I don't necessarily give the film a, a pass, but why I uh, view it as slightly more positive than than other people. It's not just a shit show the whole time. Um, but struck by lightning and the idea of one person being better than everybody else. I'm going to end this little section on a goofy note. Uh-huh. The film No Holds Barred. Uh, maybe I thought of it because I've been thinking because I've been thinking about wrestling. Uh-huh. But that is the film starring Hulk Hogan. Oh right and. Uh, I recently, because I reviewed the Blu-ray, and then I was on uh, uh, What the Fuck Are You Watching with Kyle, and we were talking about No Holds Barred, and it's a film that at first, it seems to think that, you know, wrestling fans and wrestlers, they're real Americans. They're, you know, salt of the earth, just blue collar people who just like a cold beer, and they're just regular people. Um, meanwhile, these uh, the suits... And the people who just don't get wrestling but might look to exploit it, they are quite literally just small dicked businessmen <laughs> shitting in their pants. <laughs> quite literally on all of those fronts. <laughs> uh so I thought like, okay, so it's very much against, you know, it's it's pandering to a very specific type of audience. Okay. Then I noticed that Every wrestler except for Hulk Hogan uh, is horrible. Is a, a there's a guy with comically long armpit hair and he's gross, and everybody else is just dumb and gross. And the fans are just they're not just blue collar; they're actual murderous rednecks uh, who are just complete idiots with missing teeth. And so I look at that and I just think, who is this for? This movie hates everyone with one exception. <laughs> and that's Hulk Hogan. Um, the one person it should hate. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there is, uh, he does have a, even the love interest is revealed to be a double agent. <laughs> she, she betrays him. Uh, but you know what? He forgives her because he's the best guy out there. <laughs> he's like a much more awesome Jesus because he can do body slams and stuff. Um, it is a movie that is shocking in its mis- uh, misanthropy. So, I'll but check it's, that one out. But it's hilarious at the same time. All right. Uh, let's wrap up. Sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, That's I'm fading fast here. Uh, I can ju- I'm fine to just throw out some noir titles. Yeah, I mean, we already talked about the general concept of yeah. noir in that in so many of the movies have quote unquote good people uh, become yeah. corrupted as a sort of function of inevitability. Yeah. And that's the thing. Inevitability. That's the thing. So a lot of this can be put down to fatalism, mm-hmm. but I think you also just see that to me, as much as I, as I love the film, I do think maybe the most misanthropic film, uh, the most misanthropic noir is Chinatown. Mm where there is no I mean, Jake Giddies is a pretty good character and even he's kind of sleazy yeah. and has a past and all that sort of thing. It's um, the movie that coined the, the like motto of cynicism. Forget, forget it. it. Yeah. It's, China, <laughs> forget yeah. It, Jake, it's Chinatown. But even when you have like, uh, Burt Young in there, who's just a client uh-huh. and Oh, his wife's cheating on him. And then the next time you see his wife, she's got a big old black eye. And oh, so right, even yeah. he who seems like, yeah, hey, it's Polly, you know, he's a, uh, he's harmless. 
Um, no, he's not harmless. He just punched his wife right in the face. And while I recognize it's not fun to be cheated upon, uh, cheated upon. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they did it on his, he was, he was asleep and they crawled up on him. Uh, anyway, so I recognize that, but I mean, it's just, you know, Faye Dunaway is, she's a character trying to, that's the thing. Hollis Mulray, her husband and Faye Dunaway, they're trying to protect people. Mm hmm. But we also see what happened to them, you right. know. So it's not necessarily because I think Miss uh, Misanthropy says that everybody is bad, mm. just inherently bad, and they're irredeemable. So maybe it's not totally misanthropic, but it's a certain version of misanthropy, which is the good people won't last. Yeah, that's, the bad I think people that's will win. Cynicism. Yeah, yeah. So, and that might be one of the most cynical endings of any noir. Yeah. So okay. All right. I hope everybody's a. Uh, appropriately bummed out yeah um, um yeah i mean i i feel like we should call, call out more noirs by name but in a sense they're kind of they all have it you know like yeah i, I uh, the ones i wrote i wrote down four i mean it could be any number of them i think out of the past is pretty damn cynical too okay um but i think and and misanthropic but i think the asphalt jungle uh maltese falcon and the third man Oh, so. sure. The third man, really. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, you don't get much more gleefully misanthropic than Harry Lyme. Yeah. So. God, it's a great movie. Yeah. All right. Um, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where all of our movie reviews are and links to the other podcasts in the BP fleet and links to this podcast and links to all sorts of uh, great stuff, uh, all sorts of articles. It's all at battleshipretention.com. You can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. Never both. Um, you can follow uh, me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, tyler, what's going on at your other pod- podcast, More Than One Lesson, right now? Uh, we did an episode last week about Inside Lewin Davis, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then we finally posted our My Fair Lady mini-sode. Uh-huh. Um, next week, we'll probably be talking about the best picture, Tom Jones. But in a couple weeks, we will be announcing the results of the More Than One Lesson listener-compiled top 50 movies of all time. That is still going on. So if you are a More Than One Lesson listener, email me, tylermorethanonelesson.com, with your top 10 movies, favorite, best, whatever you want, to, whatever you want it to be. Please rank, please rank them 10 to 1, 10 being the worst, 1 being the best. Worst of the 10, obviously. Um, but only if you're a more than one lesson listener. Indeed. Don't misrepresent yourself. Come on, guys. Although, you know what? Actually, I guess we should cut this out. It just occurred to me that I'll be... By the time this goes up, it's over. All right. We need to cut it out. It's okay. Fine. Sorry, Check everybody. Out. Check out the top 50 list. Yeah. Um, my other podcast is called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. It's about television. Uh, this week... We are talking about The Tunnel, which is the BBC version of The Bridge. Uh, the Bridge was a Danish show that got remade yeah. as an American show, and now it's being remade. So they're a real uh, uh, bridge and tunnel crowd. Uh-huh. Sorry. And then, um, speaking of misanthropy, uh, Paul's making me watch Big Brother. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, check that out. That's and um, Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.